0: This is Space 101.1, KMGP, LPFM, Magnuson Park.
1: That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard. And get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix
0: Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to another weekly live episode of Cascade of History, the only live radio show that's all about Pacific Northwest history. We cover... People and organizations doing cool and interesting things with and for and in and around history, historic preservation, old stuff, uh, lost places, that sort of thing from all over Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and British Columbia. We tend to focus a lot on Western Washington. That's where the show originates from. But we definitely like to bring people on the radio from British Columbia, Idaho, Oregon, the old Oregon country is what they called it uh, back in the 19th century. Um, We've got a great show for you tonight. We're going to spend a lot of time in the second half of the program Um, with an exclusive interview that I did with um, the archivist of the United States, uh, Dr. Colleen Shogan. She was in town a week or so ago and I got to do the exclusive interview. I sat down with her for like an hour and a half maybe not too far from the station here, just up the street at the National Archives Seattle location that's been there for about 60 years and if you remember that went through a whole big Oh, a whole big rigmarole a couple of years ago when the federal government tried to shut that down and sell it off and everything and move all the archives away to Missouri and California. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And so anyway, I got to sit down and spend a long time talking with the archivist of the United States. I don't have the entire interview. That would take up a couple episodes of this show. But I will play some pretty big chunks and some pretty exciting news that she shared about the National Archives' future here in Seattle. We're also going to get a, be paid a visit by our roving correspondent Ken Zick. He's out somewhere in the in the weather tonight. It's pouring down rain. It's it's what is November fifth. Uh, daylight saving time is over. We're standard time. Hope nobody tuned in an hour ago thinking they're going to hear the show. They hadn't adjusted their clock. But we'll get to a, a visit with Ken Zick somewhere on uh, Beacon Hill tonight at the old McPherson's fruit and produce stand, which shut down last month after 40 years in business. We'll also play the fourth and final installment in that um, very old, very dusty, musty sounding uh, program called Their Name Was Courage, which was a series produced back in 1850, not 1851. It was produced in 1951 for the Seattle Centennial, produced by Gloria Chandler for the Seattle uh, Junior League, and featuring a musical performance by Martin Sampson, a member of the Swinomish tribe. It's a really rare recording. It's, you know, it's not... Um, it's nothing that would be produced today. It's definitely a museum piece, but it's worth listening to, uh, particularly for the vocal performance of uh, Martin Sampson. Oh, and also, if you're tuned into Space 101.1 FM, you know it's the biggest little radio station in all of the Pacific Northwest. We're mostly volunteer-powered. We count on your contributions. If you go to our website, space101fm.org, you can see how to contribute. You can also listen to the stream there. If, you're, if the FM signal uh, isn't reaching you in your part of the Oregon country, uh, you can certainly hear the, uh, hear the signal there at space101fm.org, hear about the other programs, read about the other programs that are on the station the rest of the week. Sunday's kind of a special night. There's a couple live shows in a row. I'm, I'm usually here live, not every single Sunday, but often I'm here live doing my show. And then at 9, Jay's Radio Hour comes on, and Jay's got these incre- incredible record collection, all these old 78s and stuff. And tonight he has a lot of jazz, some dance band rarities, some City Billy, and Bix Beiderbeck. Um, I know. In recent weeks, they'd dr- driven over to Omak to get records. They'd driven down to Cave Junction, Oregon. I'm not sure where they had to drive to get the records they're going to play tonight, but uh, you'll have to Jay will have to share that with you himself when he comes on at nine o'clock Pacific Standard Time here on uh, Space 101.1 FM. Um, now, before we get to any of those big exciting parts of the show, we have a live guest joining us on the. Uh, What do we call it? The cascade history line, cascade of history line. Let me see if I can press all the buttons. There's three or four buttons I have to press all at the same time. There's that one and that one and that one. And Michelle Hernandez, can you hear me? I'm not hearing you, let's see, hang on a second. Uh, Oh, it's in queue, there we go. There we go, Michelle, can you hear me? Yes, hi. Ah, (laughs) Very good, I'm always... I always say, because I do the show once a week, and I forget how to do everything in between each episode. So, anyway, um, you are the museum director at the Hebulb Cultural Center on the Tulalip Reservation up by Marysville.
2: Yes, in Tulalip,
0: Washington. I really appreciate you joining us live tonight on the radio. It's Sunday night. It's not always the most convenient time for our guests, but it's a great time for our audience. You know, the the weekend's over. It's time to think about the week ahead, and I love the Hebulb Cultural Center. I've been there a few times. I was there... um, Yeah, back at right just before the pandemic struck, when you guys had the Treaty of Point Elliott from the National Archives there. What an amazing exhibit that was. That was incredible.
2: It was. It was absolutely beautiful.
0: And it was really just powerful to see that document, which people talk about so much. And, you know, you see it written about and you see representations of it in books and things. But to actually have the actual physical document there... On display it was pretty amazing, pretty powerful display. And I was up at the Tulalip Reservation in April when the Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland was there on that Road to Healing tour. Yeah, yeah, Another and in that incredible space, what's that big building that where that was held called? On the
2: that's the Tulalip Gathering Hall.
0: What an amazing location. And this the 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 incredible power of seeing the first Indigenous Secretary of the Interior talking about these old Department of Interior policies at the, the Indian schools and now addressing all the need to heal. It was just, it was very, I mean, it, the press, we were only allowed to be there for the first hour, then we had to leave. But the time I was there, it was pretty amazing. So I've had some really, really oh, incredible, incredible experiences yeah. on the Tulip the reservation. So I'm really glad to have you joining us on the phone tonight, because I saw on, I think it was social media or, or your website even, that you have this new exhibit called Traditional Languages of the Coast Salish People. And I wanted to find out more from you about what that exhibit actually includes.
2: So uh, the full exhibit name is Tab the traditional languages of post-Salish peoples. And Tab in Lushootseed, which is the traditional language of Tlalip and many other tribes, um, means to speak a language. And this exhibit explores six language groups of basically the Puget Sound.
0: And the thing that's incredible, I think, about indigenous language is, number one, well, there's so many things. Number one, it was never written down. <laughs> and and number two, so many, so many of the policies of that Department of Interior, those Indian schools, and so much of the other sort of forced, attempted assimilation sought to kind of stomp out those languages. So it seems yeah. incredible to me that we do know as much as we do about indigenous language.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And through this exhibit, we kind of explore um, what, like where these language groups were, and then what the tribes within these groups today are doing in terms of language revitalization.
0: Tell me more about that, because I think with a museum, a museum exhibit, that's it's terrific to come and see the maps, and probably, there's probably, I imagine there's audio clips you can play and hear it being spoken.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But, so but it, it is broken up into sections, and we do have a map, a very, very large wall map. That was done by a volunteer of ours, um, Emma Gross, who spent countless hours going through from the very, very top up by the Canadian border all the way down south um, through Olympia in the Nisquale area. um, And locating and identifying traditional names of villages, um, waterways, historic sites. Um, all in traditional language, and that map itself is quite a feature, but it's broken up in those specific language groups as well. Um, within the language groups, we have interactive displays where you can, for instance, on northern Lushootseed, which is um, what Tulalip speaks, you'd be able to, to hit on that display and see information for Siliguanish and Swinomish, Soxuadal, and Tlalip, what is happening there. So if you were to, to push the Tlalip tab, um, you'd be almost directed to the Tlalip-Lishtu Speed Language page. And it would um, take you to interactive games, stories, listening to sounds and words. So we tried to keep it fully immersive. We have displays um, featuring historic books and reference material, as well as artifacts. Um, really really beautiful lots of storytelling within the exhibit um, as well as a featured wall of what we call language warriors so people within all of these language groups in the very very early days after boarding schools after force assimilation who paved the way for our, our language departments today who continued speaking the language within their community who continued sharing stories and who allowed people to come in and record them, trusting that wow. those recordings would be used in a good way.
0: And what, when was the earliest time that those kinds of recordings were being made? That, that always fascinates me because there's sort of this, um, there's a sense sometimes that um, there's a reluctance by some Indigenous people to want to record their voice or their stories or things like that because it's just sort of, it, it almost diminishes, has the potential to diminish their, their power or something but the fact that yes. their people did allow their voices to be recorded, how early was that happening, like at Tulalip, for instance?
2: I, I, well, I, I would probably say the 50s and 60s okay. were, were probably some of the first recordings. I I could be wrong. There could have been some in the 40s as well. Mm-hmm. That timeline, I'm not—I um, I couldn't speak to as of yet. But, I understand. But the, the scarcity or, you know, the fear of speaking the language and being recorded was— really not to share it or to lose integrity, but from the trauma um, of boarding schools and the harsh punishments that came from speaking the language in those environments. Um, We have elders in our community that had never learned because their parents and grandparents didn't want to teach them because of the fear of the harsh punishments that would come from it.
0: And in terms of the revitalization efforts now, it seems like, and I, I could be totally wrong, but it seems like that those have really picked up in the last 15 or 20 years. I, again, I could be totally wrong, but it seems like there is this really intentional, deliberate effort to get younger people speaking the language, connecting with elders for the specific purpose of, I mean, that's a culture is best shared in its original language. I mean, that's like, so, you know, Shakespeare in English is, is always going to be better than Shakespeare in any other language. I imagine Indigenous stories are always going to be more accurate, more powerful in the Indigenous language.
2: Right. Well, and as those traditional and original language speakers have, you know, moved on to the other side, it is increasingly important to continue to teach the language to new generations. And so I don't know if it is more important or, you know, more um, there's more of a push Um, I think that it's more of a need. And I think that tribes have pushed for so long and continued to fight to teach and to um, carry on traditional values that the space is now open for it. So there's there's the opportunity for us to do it. And um, we're really just trying to run away with it, you know, continue to teach as many people within our communities as we can. Tulalip is in our um, early learning academy, birth to five, stories and songs and teaching, as well as elementary schools, middle schools, high schools. We have a seed 101, which is a college level course. And any opportunity we can teach, we are definitely trying to do so.
0: That's very cool. Now, in terms of the other stuff that you can see at the Hebold Cultural Center, um, tell us about that. Tell us where you're located, how people get there, how they can find out more information, what other stuff they can see.
2: Okay, great. We are off of, we are just off of exit 199, the Tulalip Marysville exit. And we are located about a mile and a half west of Interstate 5, so very close to the freeway. Open Tuesday through Sunday. And we, you know, people could come at any time during business hours. We also have special events, workshops, lectures, films. We'll be having an event this weekend for Veterans Day. Um,
0: That's great. I, I try to, you know, on the we have a Cascade of History Facebook page, and I often will reshare or repost events I see that you guys are, are um, promoting on your Facebook page, and it thank just you. all seems like you have good stuff about like. Uh, like fiber arts or some kind of like weaving or something I saw recently there? We do. Yeah. We,
2: we have a group of gals on Wednesdays that come in to the classroom and do cedar weaving, and they meet every Wednesday. We call it Weaving Wednesday. Huh. Anybody can come into that. It There is no admission required, and if you wanted to do a project, you would just um, pay a small fee for a kit, depending on the project, to the artist, and they will walk you through it.
0: Very good. And what's your web address if people want to find out driving directions and more specific, specific information on their own?
2: Heebold uh, Cultural Center org.
0: Very good. And this exhibit, Traditional Languages of the Coast Salish People, will be open through when?
2: Um, at least through the summer. It was we set this up in three months it was you know (laughs) quite the undertaking and so our the senior curator and I are thinking it's going to be up for a little bit now
0: (laughs) that's very cool I got to come see that I I love the idea of that map and I've got a copy of that there's that Thomas is it no T.T. Waterman book of indigenous place names that he put together like a hundred years ago and it's you know it's fun to thumb through it and look at it, but it's I think seeing a physical representation and what you described the with the map with the interactive map sounds sounds really cool. So
2: oh yeah, it's huge. Our GIS department and our volunteer worked so hard on it, and it's it's stunning. It's framed in. It's like ten feet by seven feet. It's pretty big. It's it's
0: amazing that sounds like definitely worth a visit all right um, michelle hernandez the museum manager for the he cultural center at the Tulalip reservation at marysville thanks for being our guest tonight on cascade of history and please come back again sometime and tell us about your next projects thank you
2: so much for
0: having us have a good evening bye-bye thanks. all right so this is cascade of history at space 101.1 fm if you haven't liked our facebook page yet uh cascade of history is the name of it it's got Lots of events and things. We try to put the links there for um, projects that we highlight through the uh, through the weekly episodes, and then just other stuff that relates to Northwest uh, history, Oregon, Idaho, Washington, British Columbia, all that old Oregon country stuff. Um, we also put the link there to the podcast because um, if you know if you don't feel like listening at Sunday night at eight o'clock live, which you know it's a it's. It's a busy time of night. Sometimes there's, there's other other stuff to do at eight o'clock on a Sunday night. The podcast is a great way to keep up. We put the entire show; we don't cut anything out. Sometimes there's even bonus podcasts that get posted during the week. We had one um, oh about ten days ago. We had a little a special podcast with the people who are running a program to save the save save Parkland School down in Pierce County. Um, and last week we also we posted that uh, our Halloween special. I don't know if you've heard our Halloween special yet. It's a ten year old recording of a kind of a tribute to uh, parody of war of the Worlds set here in seattle it it played last halloween last excuse me last sunday night at eight o'clock hopefully if you heard that you didn't tune in and think it was an actual sports radio broadcast but uh the cascade of history facebook page has all those links to the podcast you can also get the podcast at all those different places you normally get stuff like apple um spotify uh it's not on youtube yet but it's on a lot of the other aggregators just search for cascade of history and it comes right up and you know, it's about an hour long, of course. All right, well, coming up next, we're going to go, uh, in a minute or two, we're going to connect with our um, roving correspondent, Ken Zick. He's out there in the uh, in the weather tonight on an early November Sunday in the wilds of Beacon Hills uh, south of downtown Seattle. Before we do that, uh, we're going to do our, uh, we have our little episode. Um, this is this program from 1951, kind of a, a very old-style uh, history. But the interesting part about it is that there is this guy, Marvin Martin Sampson, a Swinomish uh, tribal member, who is, I don't think he's portraying Chief Sealth. I think he's actually doing the singing that you hear in the background. But if you remember, you might remember how um, a third installment of this program ended. Let's see, do you remember this?
1: My people watch over white children as great spirit watches over Suquamish. Someday, other Bostons come, help Indians. Protect my people from enemies in Northland.
0: Yeah, so not exactly, you know, not an enlightened 21st century approach to, to indigenous history, but certainly very much sounding like it's from 1951. It's from a series called Their Name Was Courage. There's a, several episodes uh, available or that were created. I've only been able to track down a couple, a um, couple recordings, and then I made from some stuff in the collection of the Museum of History and Industry. So, anyway, this is the fourth and final installment in. Uh, their name was Courage. This was the, uh, the tale of uh, Chief Tzielf. Wait, it's on, the <laughs> it's on a different page of the little thing here. Oh, we always take you behind the scenes as I stumble around with the technology here. All right, here we go.
3: Other good Bostons did come. They built more homes, stores, farms, a town. The town needed a name. And they decided, Dr. Maynard and David Denny and the others, to name it for the chief who had helped them. Dr. Maynard went to tell Seattle of their plans. Listen, chief, your name's going to live forever. Seattle, not understand. We're going to call this town Seattle. That means that every time anybody in all the world speaks of the great city we're going to build, they'll remember you, Chief Seattle.
1: No, 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 no. But chief aren't Aren't you pleased? Dr. Maynard, you, my friend, you not let old Chief's name be spoken when he's dead. You not keep Chief's spirit from rest. I see. Do not fear, my
3: friend. I, Dr. Maynard, make you this promise your spirit will rest. I, your friend, say it. As the months went by, more and more white men came. But Siat's heart again was troubled. Tension was growing. Tension over the land. On the one hand, he heard the murmuring of his people.
1: Siat forget his own Indians. Think only of white men. On the other
3: hand were the voices of the white men. Don't worry, chief. Your people will be taken care of. We'll move you to a country of your own.
1: Great spirit. Where is Red Man's home? if this is not Indian land.
3: Finally, Governor Stevens came back from Washington with messages from the great white father. Siat promised his friend, Dr. Maynard, to bring his people together to hear the proposed treaties and the plans for the Red Men. Yo, yo, oh, yo. When Siat stood to speak, clutching his blanket about him with his left hand, raising his right above his head as he always did when he spoke, The tribes and the white men paid him the homage of complete silence. Yonder
1: sky may change. Today it is fair. Tomorrow it may be overcast with clouds. My words are like the stars that never change. Whatever I say, the great chief in Washington can rely on as certainly as upon the return of the season. At night, when the streets of your cities and villages are deserted, they will throng with the returning hosts of my people that once filled them and still love this beautiful land. The white man will never be alone. Let him be just and deal kindly with my people, for the dead are not powerless. Dead, did I say? There is no death, only a change of worlds.
0: fourth and final installment from Their Name Was Courage, uh, the story of Chief Seattle, uh, produced by Gloria Chandler back in 1951, definitely showing its age. Um, some of those same words, though, attributed to Chief Seattle uh, from his uh, farewell address. That's those, those have been printed and reprinted and used again and again and interpreted different ways. Um, the best part of that whole recording is is the Martin Sampson singing, that's a member of the Swinomish tribe. I've reached out to the Swinomish tribe a few times. I'm still trying to get in touch with somebody there. I'd love to figure out if they um, mister Sampson uh, has descendants around. He wrote some books, published some books in the 1970s about uh, indigenous history. But anyway, that's uh, that uh, concludes their, uh, our look back at Seattle history. And it's really badly timed since not a, it's a week from now that is the actual hundred and— 72nd anniversary of the landing out at Alki, or Alki, as they called it uh, more recently, of the Denny Party and the uh, kind of the beginning of uh, the modern city of Seattle. So we'll have something special for next week's show. I'm not sure what yet. But it's this week's show that we're talking about now because it's this week. Um, remember, it's Space 101.1 FM, we're the biggest little radio station in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we broadcast on FM in North Seattle. We stream everywhere at space101fm.org. Go to that website if you want to uh, contribute. Um, we're mostly volunteer-powered, but we have electricity and equipment and stuff that re- takes money, so we always love uh, support for our programming. Uh, okay, and then coming up in the, the second half of the show, we're gonna have uh, long excerpts of my exclusive interview with the archivist of the United States, Dr. Colleen Shogan, talking all about the, eh, kind of the present and future of the National Archives in Seattle and what that means, what that future looks like. But before we do that, I want to bring on our roving correspondent, Ken Zick out at a special location. Let's see. Are you? Can you hear me, Ken? I can.
4: Can you oh, hear me? Oh, that's
0: great. Yes. Yeah, see, I had practice with our first caller. I remembered how to press all the right buttons here. So <laughs> now, um, I told people earlier on that you're out somewhere on Beacon Hill at a very well-known produce stand that shut down last month. Where Where are you, we you talking to you from tonight? Yeah.
4: So I'm. Uh, I'm in uh, empty now. Empty parking lot at McPherson's Fruit and Produce, which has been a neighborhood. Um, uh, mainstay, it's on the where the intersection of 15th and uh Humbian Way come together just down from the VA hospital uh-huh. and um and yeah it they uh, actually shut down after nearly four decades in this location uh they closed up for good on October 6th
0: see it's weird now that something that uh something that's been there for 40 years cuz 40 years ago was 1983 and that doesn't seem that long ago to me anymore um <laughs> but it's still that that's a good long run but i guess a lot of people are pretty disappointed that that uh, that sort of community gathering spot has now gone away
4: yeah oh m- most most definitely there's a uh, uh, n- number of uh, neighborhood groups and posts not only for not only for folks who appreciated the you know uh the cheap and good produce that were that mcpherson's offered but also it was actually an employer a lot of folks talked about getting their first job uh working at mcpherson's over the over the last four decades and uh it kind of was a, a community hub. It sounds like from folks who've been here for a long
0: time. So, paint a little picture in words. What's it look like there tonight on a windswept, uh, dark night of the first day of Standard Time,
4: 2023? So, um, so oddly enough, like it looks, it looks no different than it would maybe on a Sunday night when everything's closed up. Except there's a large "We Are Closed" uh, hand handwritten banner there up by the up by the Columbia, uh, oh. wayside. So, so I like and I peeked. Through, you know, you can peek through some of the doors there, and there's definitely there's nothing on the shelves, and there's no carts in that return cart. It's, like there's definitely a sense of like everyone's gone.
0: You'll have to send me some pictures, and I'll put them on the, uh, or you can post them yourself on the yeah. Cascade of History Facebook page if you, if you want. That'd be great. I'm sure yep. people would like to see that. You know, this yeah. there's this drumbeat now. There's that group called Vanishing Seattle, and I talked to their mm-hmm. founders. it Cynthia Brothers. Is that her name? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I talked to yep. her at a historic Seattle event a few weeks ago, and. You know, Bartels is closing down more locations. There's still this sort of drumbeat of things closing. PCC, their downtown store, which has only been open, I think, early. since last year, is closing early next year. It's just this sort of, I don't know, it feels like we're sort of uh, holding our breath or there's waiting for the next, like, cringing for the next, uh, cowering yeah. for the, what the next blow is going to be because it seems like we're still dealing with the way the economy is changing because of yep. the pandemic, but also because of technology. But it still seems like a produce stand would be something that would be that would survive all these things, but I think was the was the owner uh, operator like planning to retire? Was that part of the reason it shut down?
4: Yeah, so so George McPherson actually started a produce stand in the mid seventies. I don't know exactly when, down at Pike Place Market, and then moved up to the Beacon Hill location in the early mid eighties. Um, and I guess started with a truck. It was it used to be a Shell station up there.
0: Oh, and, that's cool.
4: And um, and so so definitely cited. You know, um, you know, it's been a long run. It's been a good run. Um, you know the economy is making it harder to run small businesses, and I'm getting ready to retire. Yeah. Um, the the cool thing, and I'll actually I'll put this up on the page as well. Is he he made a he made a call. He said he'd love to see another you know not have this knockdown for a you know six story apartment building with retail on the floor, but have like another small business. Yeah. Coming here, and so uh, so he definitely is interested in entertaining offers for folks who want to um, who know take over the location to start another community hub that'll last for another four decades, which. Seems like it's a pretty pretty refreshing refreshing attitude in, in these days of expensive real
0: estate. Yeah, yeah, and that's I mean that's hard too because I mean there's nothing wrong with buying uh, real estate for your business and operating the business for 40 years and then having part of your retirement strategy being liquidating the real estate. I mean that's that's that's, that's a that's a pretty common common route I think uh, business, small business owners take. It sort of seems like um, similar to what happened out at Mutual Fish on Rainier Avenue. Right. Was that in September I guess when they shut down? So. I, that's, that's the thing. It's hard sometimes to sort these um, closures from, you know, the, that would be happening regardless of any economic situation when it's someone who's retiring and there isn't, you know, there's not a family member who wants to take it over or just kind of the natural ebb and flow. Because if, you know, if no business ever shut down in Seattle, it would just be, it would be you know, there's, I mean, there's there's a, there's a life to all, to, to everything. There is a season. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting all philosophical now trying to trying to make myself feel better. But uh, obviously this place means a lot to a lot of people. In that part yeah. of uh, part of the part of Beacon Hill in Seattle, so I know how many other dozens of people are gathered there tonight paying tribute to the location where <laughs> you cause...
4: i think I think that all I think that'll happen the first few days of October before okay yeah, well, it see is. that
0: yeah, well, we, you know on this show we we take the long view, we like to let you know <laughs> things settle down a little bit, have you go there a few weeks later and kind of kind of be able to take a few steps back and provide that philosophical report beyond just the you know the facts, right.
4: Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's that's definitely the, the objective, happy to, <laughs> and, and, and happy, happy
0: to do it. All right, well, we'll have to figure out another location for you to go next week, because, you know, next week it's the big hundred. Oh, maybe we should send you out to Alki next week.
4: Oh, that means— Because it's it. the
0: 150th—not 150th, 172nd anniversary of the landing out at Alki Beach of the Denny Party. Actually, yeah. next, you know, next Sunday, the 13th. Oh, no, wait, see, Sunday's the 12th. <laughs> you know it's actually better. it's the e- no it's the eve of the landing because they landed early on the morning of the of the 13th. so having you out there on the evening of the 12th is even more brilliant than I thought it was. <laughs> Perfect.
4: Perfect. I'll be, be, be happy, happy to go out there there's a, there's a spud fish and chips that feels like it that's back sort of in the 80s, but it's, it's great I love That's great. okay, that.
0: yeah, we'll make it a two for one, make it a spud <laughs> and a Denny party visit to Alki next Sunday. okay, that's good. All right. Well, our roving correspondent Ken Zick—he joins us whenever some whenever there's bad news to share—and you, you haven't you haven't let us down again. So thanks, Ken. Thanks for thanks for calling in and have a good night. Post those pictures, will you, please?
4: I w- I will do. All right. All right. Okay. Good night, Ken. Bye. Bye.
0: Roving correspondent Ken Zick out there in the field on Beacon Hill, the site of McPherson's Fruit and Produce. Okay. Um. Well, I'm glad I remembered that uh, next Sunday is the 12th, not the 13th. That completely changes the 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 scope and scale of the programming. Uh, this is space 101.1 FM and streaming at space 101fm.org uh, it's 831 Standard Time Pacific Standard Time and you got to stay tuned because after this big live show ends at 9 p.m Jay's radio radio hour comes up and he's got a lot of jazz some dance band rarities some city Billy and Bix Spider Beck all right uh, okay now this is the this is the part of the show you've all been waiting for um, this is our interview with Colleen Shogun, Dr. Colleen Shogun, she's the archivist of the United States. She's been in charge of the National Archives and Records Administration, I think, since May, so just about six months. She came through town, she spoke with the Seattle Public Library, I think she met with uh, one of the indigenous tribes. But we sat down for a nice long interview, and I, I was a little, some of the information was all new to me. I, I had missed some pretty key developments in the story of the National Archives here in Seattle. Um, my first question, my first pointed question, was about uh, sort of the past sort the, of the debacle of the National Archives in the last couple of years, when they tried to shut it down, and it's um, like uh, candidly, what you know, how how safe is it? Let's, let's let's just play the play the tape. Here, this is the first installment. It's about ten minutes long, and we'll uh, be back with more here. Uh, stay with us on Cascade of History on Space One Hundred One Point One FM. I guess what what twenty twenty revealed to a lot of people was that it seemed like it was fragile, or it wasn't mm-hmm. completely wasn't protected mm-hmm. in terms of. You know, mm-hmm. long-term viability and long-term, mm-hmm. especially with all the deferred maintenance that's mm-hmm. been talked about with this building, is Seattle viable and safe for the X number of years future, or does that remain to be seen? Or
5: it's hard for me to engage in, in hypotheticals or predict the future. Uh, as a political scientist, I can say that our, um, <laughs> our, you know, the, the reality is that you know, there's a lot of things that uh, are a little bit volatile in our political system these days, and so it's hard for me to look in a crystal ball and tell you, but, however, uh, we do know we have strong support uh, from members of Congress, from uh, the state of Washington, from senators from the state of Washington, and that we're moving forward with plans to build, uh, to plan and build a new facility in the Seattle area for the National Archives. Uh, and there should be funding in uh, the the fiscal year 24 uh, appropriations legislation once it's it's passed. It hasn't, the full legislation has not been passed for fiscal year 24. But there should be funding uh, in order to support the planning for a f- new facility. And the National Archives will work uh, with GSA, uh, who will help uh, uh, select a site and make yeah. plans for a new building.
0: And do we have any, would that be... Is there any parameters as to where that would be? Is it all like city limits or the Seattle area? Is it really kind of up in the air?
5: I think it's Greater Seattle area, but okay. it's it's uh, mm-hmm. but there has been a commitment in, that will be in this uh, geographic area that it won't be okay. you know uh, in other areas of of Washington State or the Pacific Northwest. So we, we should be in within easy driving distance for people to be able to visit it. So not Missouri? <laughs> no. Oh yeah, that's right, because, I mean, I, I did visit um, our, our, our facilities in Missouri and Kansas City area, which are extraordinarily impressive uh, in these very extensive cave systems uh, that exist outside of Kansas City. Uh, so it that Kansas City is a hub for us uh, for storage of, of records. But once again, um, having these facilities in various parts of the country where the records from uh, surrounding states are located is very important for a number of constituencies here in uh, the Pacific Northwest. You have um, uh, uh, a lot of uh, Native American tribes who are very interested in the records that you have here in this facility in Seattle. So it's important, co-location is important, and we have to respect that.
0: I guess that I guess I missed the fact there's a new facility plan. Is that is that announced? Is that generally publicly known? or Is that kind of a surprise? I mean, I'm surprised. I thought I was paying attention, but maybe I missed it. It's in the appropriation drafts that came out of the I know the Senate Yeah, so, the it's public, so it's public. It's public information. information. Mm-hmm. For how long has that been public information? I feel ignorant. since they released the bills, so it would have been a couple months. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I missed it. Mm-hmm. that's exciting. So mm-hmm. this facility then. This will be, it won't be here, it won't be on this spot. This will be, I mean, the stuff will be kept until the new facility is ready.
5: It doesn't seem like it will be on this spot. I and mean, we won't have any oh, definitive, wow. inf- once again, because the money is, is for, the, the money has not been enacted yet, because the appropriation um, law has not been enacted yet, uh, we won't know until we would start the planning. But it doesn't seem as though that's the focus. It's okay. to find a new area of land and uh, be able to build a building um, uh, for, from. You know, scratch. Uh, that's great. Yeah, super mm-hmm.
0: exciting. Wow, that's awesome. Because um, so then the, the deferred maintenance here then is just like we can just sort of like. Well, de- there's actually keep fun- deferring it. Maybe well, we no, like let it go there's not? actually
5: funding <laughs> uh, in the same bill. There's actually three million dollars in that bill for repairs um, to this facility, which will help because this is not going to happen overnight. Yeah. So, uh, there are, you know, I, I, went on a tour of the facility today and there are, uh, uh issues that need to be addressed, yeah. particularly, you know, leaks that whenever we have, uh, rain in this location, which is not, you know, <laughs> which is a frequent occurrence, uh, we have to protect the records and we have to also protect the health and safety of those who work in this facility. And if you have, you know, uh, water uh, you know, routinely coming down onto the floor. I am very concerned, yes, about our records, but I'm also concerned about people working in this facility. They could easily slip and fall. You could have accidents. It's, it's not ideal. So we will work with everybody who works here to identify what the most needed repairs are uh, when this legislation is enacted, and then we will uh, work with uh, GSA to, to fix those things. In the for the, for an interim solution.
0: That's great. That's really that's really good news. Mm-hmm. Um, and then GSA, I assume, will deal with this property in terms of what yes. happens. You guys have no say about that because you're, no. you're like a tenant in yes. GSA. Yes, that
5: GSA will we'll, we'll have to deal with that, yes.
0: Because so there's Seattle City Council people who drool over this site as some sort of a you know, public mm-hmm. hey, That would be great. Mm-hmm. It, you could do a really cool public park. I mean, we have a big park down the street. But anyway, that's that's a whole other topic, I guess. Um, so with that new facility, uh, I know it's obviously in the early stages of, and the funding's not there yet, but... Um, what will be different about it, or what will be, is there sort of a new model, a 21st century model? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a very 20th century model mm-hmm. this year, and it's an old mm-hmm. Navy building. Is mm-hmm. there sort of a model that you look to for what a modern facility would look like in terms of the programming mm-hmm. spaces and the That's public interesting. spaces?
5: That's a good discussion that we will have to have, and those discussions have not begun yet with GSA, so we'll have to make our requirements known. Uh, but I am very interested, my own preference for the buildings um, that we not only, this would be a new opportunity to actually construct uh, a building uh, and have some preferences outlined, but from the buildings that we have, uh, that we either rent or are in our possession that we actually own, I really want to reinvigorate the public spaces, uh, that can, you know areas where we can have uh, people in, yes, to do research. We have to have uh, uh, good research facilities and research rooms, but also places where we could bring um, uh, school groups in uh, and they're able to learn about the records. Uh, from the history of the Pacific Northwest, we can bring groups of teachers in. Um, from Seattle Public Schools, for example, uh, on their in-service days where they can come in and, and take a, a, a day-long seminar um, led by an archivist here, a specialist who would be able to explain some of the records that might be relevant when they're teaching uh, uh, history and social studies. So we want to be able to build those facilities into the locations in addition for facility the, the areas where the records are so that they're up to standard uh, so that we can serve many purposes purposes.
0: Yeah, because it would be cool to have mm-hmm. like an auditorium to mm-hmm. do like <laughs> public lecture series. I mean, mm-hmm. all the stuff that a regular modern history museum does, you know, right. public mm-hmm. programs on mm-hmm. weekends and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that something that, is that? We'll have to see that, what's
5: that, on the okay. table. Like, we're just so early in the process. Yeah, yeah. We haven't even, you know, entered into any discussions or planning, and I've certainly not participated in any of those meetings. But once we get the money um, for GSA to engage us in that way, the National Archives, then we'll obviously be in uh, uh, direct communication with our uh, staff here in Seattle to learn also what they think would be best for this facility and uh, we'll be able to start that
0: process. Because that mm-hmm. seems to make it sort of, you know, on the political side, that makes it sort of, you know, impossible, harder to shut down if it's a place the public That's goes true. to and knows and loves mm-hmm. and goes to for, true. for, mm-hmm.
5: you know, for mm-hmm.
0: predictable programs and stuff. But. I would guess at some of those presidential libraries, there's programming like that, but probably Mm -hmm. at some of the more um, archival-focused facilities, there isn't the robust public programming that that I'm sort of fantasizing about. Mm,
5: I mean, there's a little bit of a mix. So uh, we have spaces available from a lot of the facilities that I've visited. For example, um, our facility, our archival facility in Kansas City, which is in downtown, Uh, there uh, which is a great location Uh, there are uh, spaces for uh, small exhibits from uh, the records that are located there Uh, there is a uh, a K-12 education um, center that is we're reinvigorating so that we can start to bring school groups from the Kansas City area to be able to visit Um, you know uh, let's see when we were in uh, the presidential libraries, of course, are built in some ways, you know, have been built in some ways for that type of public programming focus. But that's something we can, we can learn from and, and build upon. Uh, we, you know, we do have some resource constraints at the National Archives, so we have to make decisions uh, when we have staff at um, facilities like here in Seattle. It's a, f- a fairly small staff uh, mm-hmm. here in Seattle. Uh, so we were just having that this discussion today in our staff meeting about um, the need for, obviously, our, our skilled archivists to be able to work with uh, the accession records and the collections and helping to, pro- you know, processing those records so they're available for public use, but also being able to allocate time uh, within a, a given work week to also be able to engage with the public, uh, engage with civic groups, engage with um, uh, schools, uh, engage with uh, interested citizens, part of uh, those that are interested in in local history or or, uh, American history. So we want to be able to split that time so that we have a balance between the processing of the records and the protection of the records and sharing
0: them with the public. Are there some models uh, at some of those presidential libraries where there's a nonprofit profit that works in hand-in-hand? So that, yes. and that model could theoretically be in a new facility like this. There could be some Seattle.
5: There could be. Something. I mean, I don't say that there would be any way. Uh, we, we do, uh, with our presidential libraries, there's specific legislation oh, gotcha. uh, okay. that governs presidential libraries versus our other archival facilities. Um and uh, the presidential library system was always constructed with uh, a public-private partnership in mind. Uh, and uh, we do have foundations uh, um, associated with all of our uh, presidential libraries, and they they all have slightly different arrangements with those presidential libraries. But, you know, when I was the nominee, I did say that I would be open, and and I heard absolutely no um, pushback from um, the Senate or any member of Congress that I wanted to engage with uh, useful public-private partnerships. So I see no reason why that couldn't be entertained, and we couldn't figure out how exactly that would work, um, you know, f- for that for programming, for example, would be a good would be a good exa- yeah. example.
0: Mm. I think if that could work anywhere, I mean, Seattle mm-hmm. would be the place to pull That's it That's true. I think there's the hunger for that there and the appreciation for this facility and what That's it does. Good. That isn't. I don't know. It's like in other communities. I mm-hmm. maybe I'm just being I'm just sort of um, biased, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things like during the pandemic, it was you know when they couldn't get access to physical facilities, mm-hmm. um, the value of digitization you know stood out. But there's also that value of being in person and seeing mm-hmm. the actual record mm-hmm. and talking to the actual right. professional who is you know conserving it mm-hmm. and talking to you about it, mm-hmm. and giving you access to it. So it's sort of this balance. Mm-hmm. And I know to digitize everything here would take mm-hmm. a million years. Or to, I mean, there's some there's some big mm-hmm. long horizon mm-hmm. to really digitize mm-hmm. everything. Right. How? What's the What's the, the philosophy around that? Or how do you I mean, manage? Because it's, it's mm-hmm. in my, when I think about it, it sounds overwhelming to think of just the mm-hmm. number of records and some of those giant like. Forty-foot-long maps mm-hmm. of some of the tribal areas or the mm-hmm. rivers and stuff. Mm-hmm. What's the What's the plan for digitization? That's a big. That's a big question, I guess. So
5: some of your, the records that are here, um, are, there's about 150 million uh, pages of records uh, here in, in this particular facility, and you, we we do have a digitiz, digitization specialist who is here works a lot with the Alaska Native records, but could you know do other, um, other work as well. We are going to be g- uh, getting some new equipment here, so th- there'll be a, l- a little bit of an improvement as far as uh, digitization in this location. What we have done is that um, when we need to move, we want to digitize large numbers of records. For example, the Alaska Native records that are here are important for digitization because that they previously were located in the Anchorage facility from um, several, you know, uh, about a decade ago, and then moved here to Seattle. And part of the agreement in in closing that Anchorage facility was that those records would be prioritized for digitization, so people from Alaska, of course, are welcome here to come and and look at the records and, and use them, but for ease of access, you know, that is an important uh, grouping of records to digitize uh, so that we can have uh, Alaska Natives uh, to be able to to use them without having to travel. So whenever we have large chunks of records which we want to prioritize for digitization. We are in the process of moving those records temporarily, moving those records to uh, College Park, Maryland, outside Washington, D.C., where we are building uh, and, and in the process of standing up in the next couple of months a uh, high-powered, high-speed digitization center in the basement of our large College Park facility, which will be a, a series of very big uh, digitization um, machines that will, be set, uh, uh, that will be set up along with uh, a whole staff who will work with those um, uh, machines to be able to digitize large volumes of records. Right. So the, the records that move there will be there, there to be digitized Um, and then they will come back to uh, the Seattle facility. We are not, some people think that we are taking everything in Washington, D.C. and keeping it there. We are not, we are transporting records temporarily so that they can undergo the digitization process and then they would be returned here um, to where their permanent home is.
0: That's an excerpt from my exclusive interview with archivist of the United States, Dr. Colleen Shogun. I sat down with her at the Seattle branch of the National Archives a week or so ago. A couple of things. um, We talked about the GSA in there. That's the General Services Administration. They're essentially the landlord. They own the real estate. They manage the real estate, uh, including the facility here at Sandpoint in Seattle, literally just up the road from where I'm talking to you tonight uh, from Sandpoint. They... um, So they're the landlord. They'll be the one developing the building, the new building. And uh, the future of that property there, uh, that many acres there right off of Sandpoint Way, that's to be determined by GSA. It's very valuable real estate. Um, The conversation was interesting um, because the – it seems so early in the development process. It's there's something like eight million dollars that's been set aside for planning for the uh, ca- the uh, deferred maintenance. Some of the deferred maintenance, I mean, the roof leaks at the current facility. But I, I have this big fantasy of the facility being something totally unlike any other national archives location in the country. More like a um, more like a history museum would be, um, and I would guess they'll ultimately choose someplace. Not too far from Seattle, but probably someplace in an industrial area or someplace where the real estate is is more affordable, and there's place for room for a parking lot and that sort of thing. I think I think that's all to be determined, but I love the idea of it having being more of a destination with an auditorium for lectures, um, space for exhibits, place classrooms where you can do sort of more hands-on community events, and just you know, have it be a gathering place because um, I think politically as i mentioned in the interview with dr Shogun, you know a place that people visit and are going to and spending time that they know exists is going to be far more uh defensible than the facility here was in seattle it really took people by surprise when it ended up on that list of of uh, sites to be closed and you know we we had uh, attorney general bob ferguson on this show before talking about the campaign he led the legal effort to shut down that sale and you know, groups of uh, indigenous tribes and historical societies and uh, other constituents for that facility that he organized. Um, I think that's, I mean, the fact that, I also like the fact that that legislation that's on the docket there, which was, you know, the bill was introduced back in July. I hadn't heard anything about it. I was, I, I came prepared with the interview with my list of, you know, what are you going to do about all this, you know, tens of millions of dollars of deferred maintenance? And, you know, does, does this facility have a future? And I was completely <laughs> foolishly blindsided and learning that, learning in that interview that they're, a new facility was in the works. Now, a lot could happen between now and when the funding is available. I mean, that's a whole, it's a lot of money. I mean, the eight million is just a, a just a start. I don't know what the total budget would be for the the final facility, but it's got to be close to, uh, you know, and the the moving and everything that would happen that would have to take place, you know, to take down everything in the current facility. It's it's definitely you know north of a hundred million dollars. I'm sure. I, I mean, that's maybe it's even more than that. Who knows. Um, and politically, will that money be there in this current session of Congress and the next session? Boy, that seems really hard to predict. But I do like I do like what Dr. Shogun was saying. It seems like they're committed to Seattle. Um, they understand that part about when they moved the archives from Anchorage many years ago. That part of the deal was the they would be accessible here. So anyway, I, I was a really encouraging meeting. I want to have um, I want to play one more clip from uh, Dr. Shogun. I asked her about the um, you know, there's been so much focus on the National Archives in the uh, light of the um, indictment against the former president, President Trump, about the way the records were handled. And I, I mean, I, I'll play this little clip here, and then maybe we'll play a little bit more when we talked about the digitization efforts. But this is, uh, this is about what happens when the next administration changes, whether that's in 25 or 29. This is the Archivist of the United States, Dr. Colleen Shogan, in an exclusive interview with me a few weeks ago here in Seattle. With this next presidential transition, whether it's mm-hmm. in 2025 or 2029, mm-hmm. will you guys have different policies or practices in place to sort of an- to anticipate some of the stuff that happened mm-hmm. this most recent time around?
5: Well, to be clear, there's um, we are not in possession of presidential records until a president's term ends. So we can't put any—we do have communications with um, uh, the White House Office of, of Records Management, which exists— but it's a, it's a part of the White House uh, that we have regular communications with uh, about the particularly the paper records that are being processed through the White House on on any given day. Um, but, you know, that's not an issue, but it's still property of the White House during a president's term. We only receive those records right Uh, when um, typically on January 20th at at noon when Mm -hmm. a president's term has ended. And we have very efficient uh, processes in place for when that happens, uh, for us to be able to uh, then take possession of those records, uh, transport them to a secure facility uh, until we have an archival team um, very soon thereafter that will start to now look through uh, the boxes and start to do very early processing uh, and inventory of, of those records. So by law, there is nothing that uh, that I can do as the Archivist of the United States or the National Archives can do writ large um, with the handling of those records until they uh, legally become our, our federal property.
0: But I'm sure there'll be more scrutiny by the media when this mm-hmm. next time around it'll be like, you know, I can imagine, <laughs> for, the, for the first time ever, that process will be covered with, Maybe. Like, you know, I don't know. It could See, be. Well, you know, yeah. that day is a
5: crazy day on <laughs> yeah. and, and the White House in general, yeah. you know, when there is a transition, because it's not only, yes, the records uh, uh, obviously would, would be a transfer on that day. But then, you know, they're, they're flipping the entire White House on that day, which is unbelievable that they do that within about a four or five hour time frame in which they have to move all the possessions of the outgoing administration and the outgoing first family out. And move the possessions of the incoming um, administration and the first family in. So it is a you know th- that is a very um, uh, chaotic day. I learned a lot more about that when I was at the White House Historical Association yeah. and how that operated uh, and heard some really fascinating stories uh, about that. So we we are one component of that, um, yeah. the federal records portion of it. But as I've not lived through that yet, I've not seen it before, but as I understand it, uh, our component of that, our portion of that is um, uh, very well honed, uh, done it uh, numerous times, and uh, we plan to, to keep those processes in place.
0: That's, again, Dr. Colleen Shogan, the Archivist of the United States, uh, talking about the, uh, the next time they transition and they have to deal with the boxes of presidential records, which wasn't their fault that it went uh, kind of sideways the last time. Um, let's have a, hear a little bit from her. I, I have a long, little, little excerpt from this longer cut. We wanted, wanted to ask her about uh, digitization a little bit more. Um, this is uh, a little more of our conversation. And we'll just play a few minutes of it here, then we'll be wrapping up the show here. It is almost 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Jay's radio hour is coming up. He's got a bunch of great surprises tonight, but here's a little bit more with uh, Dr. Colleen Shogun, the Archivist of the United States. With this next presidential transition, whether oh, no, it's... no, in... that's not one. We heard that one already. Let's go to this one here. Because, I mean, if you think about the future, like 100 years from now or 200, it seems like at some point in the future, everything will be digitized. At some
5: know, point, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. and that's a
0: good thing. Um, yes. But there's also that, that argument to be made for decentralized storage and decentralized mm-hmm. public access to the professionals and mm-hmm. the actual, you know, the actual real... Mm-hmm. Archival documents. Right. Um, it seems like a real tricky balance. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe that's not even a question. That's I just don't
5: survey. know. Yeah, I had to think like forty to fifty years ahead of time. Like, what's the archives going to look like then? And I still can see the value of those, um, uh, the dispersed regional uh, system forty to fifty years uh, down the road. Of course, I, I don't know what uh, it's going to look like forty or fifty years down the road, but I can still s- see the value there. 200 250 years down the road like you said perhaps everything is is digitized we're maybe communicating in ways that you or i can't even imagine um and how we're we're accessing information uh, it's, it's really hard to predict or say. I will say this, though, um, and, you know, I don't know what the humans of the future or the American citizens are going to be like in the future, but uh, it is something to see people engage with the actual records in person, and I get to do it all, all the time. Um, uh, you know, to see people that come in, to, in Washington, D.C., or any of the other facilities that I go and visit, and they see something, for the first time, uh, something that's relevant to them, uh, whether it's it's something that's a, a part of their personal history, their um, their are particular area of the country you know regional history or something that's just an amazing document in American history like you know um, uh, George Washington signed um, uh, ple- uh, oath pledge you know at Valley Forge and as did everybody else who was at Valley Forge as part of the Continental Army and people see his oath card and Alexander Hamilton's oath card uh, you know and and they're very moved by being able to see these important records of American history history.
0: So I really enjoyed my conversation with uh, Dr. Colleen Shogan. I have high hopes for the future of the National Archives here in Seattle. I think one thing I'm going to do in the next, sometime over the next couple weeks, is kind of check in with some of the other kind of usual suspects in this whole story, like with uh, Attorney General Bob Ferguson, um, with our state delegation, uh, who are, you know, Senator Murray and Senator Cantwell, in terms of their support for the bill, that's you know, the, to get this $8 million to get the thing off the ground. So just kind of take the temperature and see, as well as those other states, Alaska Idaho, Oregon, um, every those those states all have materials. They all have need materials are stored there that people in those states need to access. You know, indigenous tribes and and other people with uh, needing access to federal records. So anyway, it was a great conversation. Um, again, can totally surprise that there is money in the budget to create a new facility here in Seattle and put all this uh, the old deferred maintenance of the Sandpoint facility behind them. So. Certainly more to come on that story. Not a done deal, and probably about a decade-long horizon. Maybe maybe seven, eight, nine years before that new facility would open. So it's it's a long time from now. So, but again, good news, and these things take time, of course. All right. Well, uh, we're wrapping up uh, another big episode here of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM Jay's Radio Hour. The whole crew is here to get that show off the ground. Here, you can tell they're going to be uh, they're going to be getting their stuff going here pretty soon with a bunch of great. 78s and other kinds of cool old records. Now, uh, I want to thank our guests, uh, Michelle Hernandez of Hebulb Cultural Center. And check out the exhibit there about uh, indigenous language up there in uh, Tulalip, next to Marysville. Our roving correspondent, Ken Zick, out there in Beacon Hill. And Dr. Colleen Shogun, archivist of the United States. Um, Next week, uh, Sunday, September 12th, it's the eve of the Seattle... Uh, The founding of Seattle, November 13th, 1851. I think that means it's, what, 172nd anniversary. But the bigger thing for me, that means we're only 28 years away until the Seattle bicentennial. And I sure hope I live to see that. (laughs) 28 years is a long time. 28 years ago, 28 years ago. I I can't can't remember what I was doing 28 years ago. But that's going to be a great big event, that centennial in uh, 2051. I think hopefully the city is already planning for that. Um, In the meantime, you can get our podcast anytime, most podcast platforms. I uh, just search Cascade of history it's on Apple it's on Spotify you can get it most places and we're here on space One Hundred One Point One 1.1 FM every Sunday night from eight o'clock to nine o'clock Pacific Standard Time it's Cascade of history with me Felix Bennell and coming up next is Jay's radio hour <laughs>
1: That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.